episode 12. Coming to you live from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. This is CVS. And now here's your host, David Ross. We're back. I'm back with episode 12. I'm burning through these Vatican II episodes just because I'm inspired. I'm on fire. I love all ecumenical councils. I love the church. And I'm loving reviewing these highlights because it's been a while. I don't know how long, maybe a year, since I read this, this book, this translation of the documents of Vatican II with the commentaries and the footnotes and everything. Very excited. I'm very excited. I hope you're inspired and you're excited. Uh, you can forgive all my weak commentary that I add on verbally, and you can just uh, take what inspires you. Go off and read the documents yourself. Get excited. If you're not part of the church, join the church. Help others into the church. And for God's sake, stay in the church. Persevere in your faith. Build your faith. Strengthen your faith through prayer and the sacraments. Continuing now with the documents of Vatican II, this is Dave Urban on Revelation. Picking up right where I left off, to the, successor of the successors of the apostles, sacred tradition hands on in its full purity God's word, which was entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Thus, led by the light of the spirit of truth, these successors can, in their preaching, preserve this word of God faithfully expand it and make it more widely known. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Let me say that again. It is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Let me say that a third time. It is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. How can you have devotion to sacred tradition when you don't believe in sacred tradition? How can you love tradition, when you deny tradition. I'm not bashing the Protestants here. I love the Protestants. Most of them are way more Christian than I, than I am. I don't want to say than I'll ever be because I want, I want to aim a little bit higher than that. I love all Christians. I love all people. But how can you claim to love Tradition, when you deny tradition, it doesn't make any sense. We have to acknowledge tradition. We have to, even if you acknowledge scripture, that implies a love of tradition because it's by tradition we got scripture. When the different writings were proposed as canonical, the church fathers used tradition to judge the written word. They used the, the oral word to judge the written word. That's how we got our canon of scripture. So if you claim to love scripture, you are really admitting that you love tradition and that tradition is real. 
End of rant. The sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the word of God, which is committed to the church. Holding fast to this deposit, the entire holy people united with their shepherds remain always steadfast, steadfast in the teaching of the apostles, in the common life, in the breaking of the bread, and in prayers, so that in holding to, practicing, and professing the heritage of the faith, their results on the part of the bishops and faithful are a remarkable common effort. The task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. Let me say that again. The task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, which is to say whether scripture or tradition, the task of authentically interpreting the word of God has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office, which is to say the Pope and the bishops who teach in union with the Pope, the living magisterium. The task of authentically interpreting has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. The Southern Baptist Church? No, there's no such thing. The, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. The Southern Baptists are lovely people, but they don't have a church. They're an ecclesial community. They're, they're a Christian community in an imperfect relationship with Mother Church. I love them. I hope they enter into full communion. And there are means of salvation available to them that are designed to bring them into full communion. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it. Let me say that again. The teaching office, the living magisterium, the Pope and the bishops who teach in union with the Pope, they are not above the word of God, but they serve the word of God, teaching only what has been handed on. They can't add stuff willy-nilly. They can't make stuff up. They can't make up a doctrine or a, a dogma. Say, I'm going to dogmatically define ex-cathedra that uh, the Montreal Canadiens are the greatest hockey team that ever played. That's a, that's a bad example because I hate sports. And I, I particularly hate the Montreal Canadiens. No offense to those who love them. But we can't just willy-nilly define stuff. Uh, the living magisterium can't willy-nilly display. It's dependent on the word of God, completely dependent on it. So this teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully by divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others, and that all together and each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Boom! What more can I say? This is powerful. Let me read that again. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one, cannot, that one cannot stand without the others. So you can't just have sola scriptura. You need sacred tradition and you need the living magisterium. That is to say that you need the oral tradition of the church and you need the pope and the bishops who teach in union with the pope. You can't just have scripture. There is no scripture without tradition and there's no tradition... In scripture without the living magisterium to interpret it, to hand it on, to protect it. 
because they're all essential to the faith and to the church. God has positively ordained it. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design. So why did God design it this way? Because he's infinitely wise. That's the answer. God ordained it this way. This is how Christ built his church. Don't complain. Don't argue. Get in. Moving on to chapter 3 now, the divine inspiration and the interpretation of sacred scripture. This should be interesting. In composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. This is divine inspiration. The sacred scriptures are the only place where this happens. Let's read it again. In composing the sacred books, God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their powers. So they have free will, they have creativity, they know the languages in which they wrote. They had cultural knowledge, they had knowledge of family life and uh, civic life and of agriculture. They had uh, knowledge of uh, politics and geopolitics and uh, finance. They had all kinds of knowledge. And they were able to make use of all of that as God used them to create the scriptures. Amazing. As true authors consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted, he, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, the primary author, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching firmly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted to put into the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. Therefore, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, for instructing in justice, that the man of God may be perfect, equipped for every good work. Very powerful. I mean, the, the gift of Holy Scripture cannot be underestimated. It cannot be... Uh, we need to bear in mind just how powerful this gift of the Word of God is, the written Word of God, how powerful it is. It's a very unique contribution to the literature of the world. It stands above all the other forms of writing, because it, is, it has for its author, its primary author, the Holy Spirit, who is God Almighty. I'm jumping now down to the next highlight, which is in the footnotes. The first sentence of Article 3 refers to so-called natural revelation, the indications of God nature, God's nature and activity to be gathered from the existence of created things. But what follows deals with the supernatural revelation, which is not dumb evidence, hard to interpret, but a series of personal acts and utterances. The last and definitive one is the incarnation. So making a little distinction there between natural revelation and supernatural revelation. Natural revelation is sometimes referred to as the book of nature. The next footnote here arises the question of 
the two sources of divine revelation. Scripture is clearly something different from a living oral tradition, but as sources from which we may learn what God has in the past revealed, can scripture and tradition be treated separately, or must they always be taken together? The prevailing view since the Council of Trent has been that they may be treated separately, and statements of revealed truth, which is to say dogmas, may be gathered from tradition alone, though they are in no way contained in scripture. This answers the question that I often raise, and it's sometimes posed to me, do all of the dogmas go back necessarily to explicit written tradition, which is to say the sacred writings, the scriptures, or are some based entirely in tradition, not written in scripture, but only in uh, contained in sacred tradition? And this text seems to be saying that they don't need to explicitly go back to scripture. The prevailing, uh, reading this again, the prevailing view since the Council of Trent has been that they may be treated separately and statements of revealed truth, that is to say dogmas, may be gathered from tradition alone. So dogmas may be gathered from tradition alone, though they are in no way contained in scripture. Interesting, I'm going to make a mental note of this. This is a footnote. This is not an infallible statement. This is just talking about the history since Trent. Theologians have fallen on this side. Okay, so bear in mind this is just a footnote. It's not infallible. The other opinion recently revived, which claims to be the pre-Tridentine teaching, maintains that all Christian revelation is contained in Scripture, not necessarily in explicit terms sufficient to prove it, but at least by implication, which may, which can be made explicit in the light of tradition. So this is the other point of view. So I guess this footnote is presenting both alternatives. The question was much debated in the council, and the majority of the fathers preferred not to decide it one way or the other. The final text in Article 8 explains the nature of each of the two forms of transmission, and in Article 9 it insists on their functional unity. So it's unresolved, and again, if there's ambiguity in the language, it's to make sure we have room moving forward to explore this further. Very interesting, though. The next footnote, this the apostles did in the first place by word of mouth, that oral transmission has never ceased in the church. Preaching, instruction of converts, catechetics are still oral, person-to-person -person communication. The message must be normally passed on by personal contact. Christianity can never become a mere book religion. At the same time, in the New Testament, the exact norm of the exact form, excuse me, of the apostolic message with all its characteristics of time and place is permanently preserved. The next footnote, a description of the development of dogma. Note that the first medium of this development is the consideration and contemplation of revealed truth by the faithful who are implicitly compared with Mary, treasuring these things in her heart. <clears throat> the next note, the ancient fathers of the church, early Orthodox Christian writers up to and including St. Gregory the First, I'm not sure why I made that note. I'd have to go back and look at where that comes from. Note 20. Witness to the living presence. Okay, moving on. Excuse me one moment. I'm going to mark my place here. Just marking as red. 
Okay, the next footnote. This careful formula was one of the last additions to the text made by made at the Pope's request. It does not exclude the opinion that all revelation is in some way, though perhaps obscurely contained in Scripture, but this doesn't this may not suffice for certitude. And in fact, the church always understands and interprets scripture in light of her continuous tradition. See the end of Article 12. So I'm going to go back and see where this uh, footnote 21 comes from. The successor of the apostles, sacred tradition, hands-on, and trust to the apostles, thus led by the light and spirit of truth, these successors can in their preaching present preserve the word of God, faithfully explain it, make it more widely known. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. That's that phrase that I emphasized over and over again. <clears throat> and the footnote to that is, this careful formula was one of the latest additions to the text made at the Pope's request. It does not exclude the opinion that all revelation is in some way, though perhaps obscurely contained in scripture, but this may not suffice for certitude, and in fact, the church always understands and interprets scripture in light of her continuous tradition. So this footnote is basically saying that there was careful language used, and the Pope himself insisted on this, and it makes it emphasizes that uh, that the church is the church has the power of interpretation, and that the church uh is not dependent exclusively on sacred tradition, but it doesn't rule out the possibility that each and every dogma is contained, at least implicitly, in sacred scripture. Moving on to the next footnote, the Latin term for the beginning, uh, the Latin term for the teaching office is magisterium, including in its broad sense all who proclaim the word with authority in the church. It generally it generally refers to the pope and the bishops collectively. Their duty is to serve. The word of God. Just a simple, straightforward clarification there. The next footnote, and <clears throat> excuse me, an earlier draft of the Constitution had joined the adjective salutaris, <clears throat> tending to salvation, to the word truth. Another last-minute change substituted the phrase for the sake of our salvation to avoid seeming to limit the truth itself. The point remains the same and can be shown by quoting a text from the following official footnote. <clears throat> excuse me, I have a glass of water here. Let's go back and see footnote 30, 31. Where does that come from, footnote 31? Therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching firmly, faithfully, and with error that truth. So, it's inspired. It's the Word of God. Holy Spirit speaking. They wanted to include, an earlier draft wanted to say saving truths, but another last minute change substituted the phrase for the sake of our salvation to avoid seeming to limit the truth itself. There you go. This is important as a young earth, I'm a young earth creationist, and it's very important to understand that Vatican II leaves this open, it made a point of emphasizing that it's not only matters of faith and morals. It's not the truths of pertaining to faith and morals that are protected from error. Everything is protected from error. The inerrancy of the Bible touches on everything. So let's see what St. Thomas Aquinas says. 
continuing here, this is St. Thomas Aquinas now, any knowledge which is profitable to salvation may be the object of prophetic inspiration, but the things which cannot affect our salvation do not belong to inspiration. Hence, Augustine says that although the sacred writers may have known astronomy, nevertheless the Holy Spirit did not intend to utter them to utter through them any truth apart from that which is profitable to salvation. He adds that this may concern either teachings to be believed or morals to be practiced. The Bible was not written in order to teach the natural sciences nor to give information on merely political history. It treats of these and of all other subjects only insofar as they are involved in matters concerning salvation. It is only in this respect that the veracity of God and the, and the inerrancy of the inspired writers are engaged. This is not a quantitative distinction, as though some sections treated of salvation and were inerrant, while others gave merely natural knowledge and were fallible. It is formal and applies to the whole text. The latter is authoritative and inerrant in what it affirms about the revelation in God and the history of salvation. According to the intentions of its authors, divine and human, it makes no other affirmations. So let me read that again just to get to get it straight. This is a little bit. Uh, this is uh, this is important. An earlier, I'm going to read the whole footnote 31. An earlier draft of the Constitution had joined the adjective salutaris, tending to salvation, to the word truth, in the context of the Holy Spirit as the author of all the truths in the sacred scriptures. Another last-minute change substituted the phrase for for the sake of our salvation to avoid seeming to limit the truth itself. The, the point remains the same and can be shown by quoting a text from the following official footnote. St. Thomas Aquinas says, any knowledge which is profitable salvation, etc., etc. I want to jump down now. Uh, it is only in this respect that the veracity of God and the inerrancy of the inspired writers are engaged. It is not a quantitative distinction, as though some sections treated of salvation while others gave merely natural knowledge. It is formal and applies to the whole text. The latter is authoritative and inerrant in what it affirms about the revelation of God and the history of salvation. According to, their, according to the intentions of its authors, divine and human, it makes no, no other affirmations. So I'm going to have to uh, go away and think about that, meditate on that, how it pertains to the... Uh, well, I mean... In terms of Genesis and the saving truths uh, of faith and morals uh, contained in the story of origins, I think I'm on safe ground with the dogmatic support I have in de, de fide dogmas such as uh, the dogma that God created a good world and that sin entered the world through sin and uh, death came into the world by way of original sin and the dogma of original sin. These are all de fide dogmas. And uh, there is another um, infallible dogma of the church that the soul of the human is the form of the body of the human. All of these teachings, which are infallible dogmas, support my young earth creationism. This, uh, this question of inerrancy, the, the scope of inerrancy in the Bible is, is subtle. As we see in this footnote, we're talking about uh, the saving truths. And we cannot chop up the Bible into individual pieces and make two piles. These are the saving truths and these are the irrelevant 
fallible truths of natural science, natural history, these sorts of things. We can't do that. That's what this footnote is saying. We cannot do that. So the implication is that it's all important. It's all connected to saving truths. And the Bible in all of its parts is inerrant. But there is no affirmation about natural science. There's no affirmation about uh, history. There are, uh, as we read in another portion of, um, of the official document of Vatican II here on, on sacred scripture, there are things reported in scripture that are, that are unholy. For example, people sinning, people falling away, people being stiff-necked, and so on and so forth. And there are historical events and uh, apparent contradictions, right? That are different points of view. Even in the four gospels, the three synoptic gospels, you have different apparent contradictions in their testimony. The different ways of resolving that and understanding that. It's a very it's a very hairy issue. But the the main point of biblical inerrancy is that in that all of the Bible, <clears throat> all of the scriptures, and in all of the parts are protected from error. Moving on, Article 12 insists on two of the main points made in Pius XII's encyclical Divino Afflante Spiritu. The first is the importance of the intention of the human author of a scriptural book or passage. We must understand what he was aiming at in order to interpret his words aright. The second is the distinction of literary forms. In ancient Israel, Israelite literature, as in any other, there were many distinct types of literary composition, each with its recognized and conventional style, idioms, and usages. There were different conventional ways of representing the past, for example, of writing history, with varying proportions of literalness or symbolism. The comparative study of these conventions has greatly clarified for us some difficult parts of the Old Testament. Straightforward comment in that footnote. Moving on. Scripture is its own best commentary. It must be treated as a whole and understood according to the analogy of faith. Analogy of faith. Note that one function of scripture scholars is to help the church's understanding of scripture to mature. So we can mature in our understanding of scripture, but with the help of the theologians. Apostolic men refers to the generation partly contemporary with the apostles, but younger than they. For example, Mark and Luke. Just a little technical clarification there. Moving on now. I don't have a lot of time left, but let's move along. One more footnote. This is perhaps the most novel section of the constitutions. Not since the early centuries of the church has an official document urged the availability of scriptures for all. Let's go and see what that footnote uh, is talking about. Footnote number 50. Easy access to sacred scriptures should be provided for all Christian faithful. Not a very controversial statement, but I guess uh, some Protestants insist that the church tried to hide the Bible or limit the uh, production of the Bible. They were very valuable, so they were chained, often chained to the churches, but that's because they were so valuable. Another footnote, this draws the practical consequence from the affirmation of Divino Afflante Spiritu. The original text has more authority and more weight than any translation, old or new. Modern language versions, therefore, should, be, should by preference be made from that text, not from pre-existing translation. Obviously, it's always better to go to the source. 
a response. Now, I don't know, uh, I'm not gonna get too far in this. This, uh, there's a lot here. I obviously enjoyed this response by Frederick C. Grant, whoever he might be, probably a Protestant of some sort. But uh, this is a response to uh, Dave Verbum. I'll do it next time because I think I'm running out of uh, I think I'm running out of time here. I don't want to uh, rush and panic like I often do at the end of these these episodes. But uh, I will come back. Uh, it's four o'clock now. I've got an interview with Matthew Murdoch at uh, five, I think, at five. So I might be able to squeeze one more in today. I'm really happy I got to plow through a few of these today. Making progress and lots and lots to see. Lots of footnotes coming up and uh, excited to see how it shapes up with my notes and it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring me to go back and read the documents again, meditate on my favorite parts of the 16 documents of Vatican II and to fall even ever more deeply in love with Christ and his church. So that's it for this episode. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being here. God bless. For as little as one dollar per month, you can support the charitable mission of CVS which has already enrolled hundreds of guests and patrons and their immediate families in the Scalabrini League of the Missionary Fathers of St. Charles Borromeo. By your generous support, you too participate in these benefits. A special Mass offered on each day of the year and the devotion and good works performed by the members of the Society. Thank you for your generous support.